Hello, everyone. This is Gerard Robinson. Welcome back to another great edition of The Learning Curve. Today, I'm actually joined by Carrie McDonald, who is standing in for my regular co-host, Cara, who is, in her very elitist way, spending time with her family, doing things that regular people cannot do. But uh, Carrie, of course, makes time for us. So, Carrie, welcome back to The Learning Curve. Oh, it's great to be back with you, Gerard. Thanks for having me. Well, the last time you and I were together, um, COVID-19 was still moving ahead as it is right now. Uh, politics about who is going to be president has not yet been solved. Well, it is now. And it looks like we're going to get a new secretary of education. So a lot of things have changed. But as you know, some things stay the same. And I think a story that you're going to share with us will tell us a lot about it. Yes. One of the things that I think everyone is really focused on are why are some school districts open for in-person learning and others are not? Um, and this has been the case over the past several months that more than half of American students are not in school full time for in-person learning. Um, but the majority of private schools, for example, are open for in-person learning and what is going on. Uh, and there's been, you know, increasing research done showing that it's the influence and strength of teachers unions in specific areas that are controlling or influencing uh, whether or not school districts reopen. And we've seen this play out most recently um, with a battle in Chicago between Mayor Lori Lightfoot and the Chicago Teachers Union mm. about school reopening. So there was an article uh, in the New York Times uh, this week, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot on what she learned from battling the teachers union. It was an interview with her um, really reflecting on what's been uh, a challenging few weeks and months in, in confronting some of the demands of the teachers union. And I had written about this uh, earlier this month, right as the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, had uh, proclaimed that schools, elementary schools at least, would reopen. Um, this was about two weeks ago, and there were 60,000 elementary school students who had already signed up and registered to go back for mm -hmm. in-person learning. And then the teachers union stepped in and said, no, we're not we're not uh, prepared to do that. And so they went back again to the drawing board. And now uh, apparently they have come to an agreement and will uh, open up schools in early March. Uh, and so in this New York Times article, uh, Lori Lightfoot reflects on uh, what went down with the uh, teachers union. Did she say in particular what was the aha moment? that made her realize that I've got to do something different than before? Well, you know, she makes a really interesting point in looking at some of these other school districts, like in San Francisco, for example, uh, other areas where there are you know, ongoing disagreements between the unions uh, and the school district, including lawsuits being launched, um, kind of uh, suing their own uh, and also in Los Angeles. And one of the things that she says is that, you know, kind of the strong mayor uh, made this possible that she believes that, you know, kind of putting her foot down was what ultimately made this process be able to move ahead as opposed to um, the school boards or some of these other cities that had different leadership um, organization. In your article and in the preparation to write it, what conclusions have you reached in terms of how much of this is just we don't want to go back at union politics 101 
how much of it is, is really about safety of the teachers or third, somewhere in the middle? Yeah, so there were several uh, research papers uh, conducted over the fall or published over the fall that looked at um, what was causing some school districts to reopen and what wasn't. And uh, researchers at Brown University, for example, discovered that it really was had a lot to do with the strength of the teachers unions in certain areas, um, that if the teachers unions were really strong in a given geographic area, it was less likely that the, that school district would reopen for in-person learning. And if there was less influence, then the schools would reopen. Um, interestingly, this Brown University study also found that competition from uh, in this case, parochial schools, Catholic schools had a lot to do with it as well. They found that in counties that had a high percentage of Catholic schools, um, public schools were more likely to reopen for in-person learning than in counties that didn't have a large number of Catholic schools. So again, we see, and we see this in school choice um, more broadly, but when there's competition with, public, with conventional public schools, um, they will get more competitive and change their ways to better compete uh, for those students. And in, in a similar note, um, you know, we really have seen an exodus from public schools, certainly here in Massachusetts, as well as other states across the country, uh, as parents really clamor for in-person learning options. They're um, increasingly looking toward private education. Um, I study homeschooling quite a bit, and homeschooling rate has more than as uh, more than doubled mm -hmm. in the U.S. Uh, mm -hmm. over the past year. Uh, to now nearly 5 million independent homeschoolers. So I think parents are really um, frustrated that in many cases that schools have not reopened fully for in-person learning and they're looking for alternatives. You mentioned Catholic schools and we celebrated Catholic schools week a couple of weeks ago. Um, but if you look at the private schools, remember uh, they're not getting the same uh, investment in terms of COVID-19 stimulus funds that the public schools are. And we know because of the law that a small portion of it, roughly $2.3 set aside for governors to use. There's also a set aside for private education, but nothing compared to the 50 plus billion just in the December investment. And yet the private schools who also have teachers of the same age as some of their colleagues in the public school sector, who in fact have some of the same uh, comorbidities and the same concerns about their health, which we all should, and yet they're seeming to do it with less money. But that's another conversation for another time. Right. Well, and just to wrap up, you know, this New York Times article that we're talking about with the interview with Mayor Lori Lightfoot, she gives a nod to private schools and in particular to parochial schools saying, look, you know, we have this model of private and parochial schools across the country who've opened safely and successfully for in-person learning. And there's no reason why public schools shouldn't be able to do the same. And while you're talking about uh, Chicago, Jason Golden and a group of people in Chicago, in fact, are trying to uh, support um, vocational training and trades uh, in that city. But a recent vote stopped the expansion of uh, money through the tax credit program to make that happen. That could have helped some of the children we're talking about. So yours is, is about COVID-19 in schools. Mine is also about schools, but more or less higher ed, and it's really a focus on artificial intelligence. For the last 10 years, AI has been a major part of what we do in the learning community, whether it's K-12 higher ed, whether it's the military, or whether it's entertainment. Well, as it relates to higher ed, there have been really two ways of looking at it. A, being a bad thing that AI, in fact, is 
uh, will lead to fewer people uh, having certain jobs in the academy because AI is taking it over all the way to the good that it will streamline how we deliver teaching and learning. Well, this story is from Education Search and it's from Rebecca Coning, February 11th, 2021. And the title of her article is A Small College Hopes to Claim Artificial Intelligence for the Liberal Arts. Colby College in Maine, founded in 1813, uh, received a $30 million gift from an alumnus. And this money is going to be used to establish the Davis, uh, the Davis Institute for Artificial Intelligence, which aims to integrate machine learning, natural language processing, and big data into instruction and research across the college. Now, when we think of AI and its relationship to higher ed, we think of big schools, as she noted, like MIT, University of Georgia, Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey, or Stanford University. Well, this small liberal arts college, uh, among the first to have a multi-million dollar investment to say AI matters, but it matters a lot if we link it to liberal arts. And as someone who studied philosophy and who is a humanist and believes that uh, the, um, the arts and science in the general sense is really good for human flourishing, uh, she makes a really good point that maybe some of the challenges that people see with AI, and they're real, uh, maybe could have been addressed earlier, decade ago, maybe two decades ago, if in fact it was not simply engineers who were leading the way in shaping how we talk about AI, but maybe bringing in liberal arts students and liberal arts scholars and activists and others who could have raised deeper philosophical questions about human nature versus human nurture and what role this can play in either helping us humanize more or crushing our humanity. And so she thinks that uh, the Davis, Davis Institute is going to provide a, uh, a good opening for other small liberal art colleges uh, along, of course, the East Coast, but also the Midwest, South, and California. I know uh, some of the challenges with AI. As an African-American, I have friends uh, where AI has been used to note them as being somewhere where they weren't uh, and also know online that Black figures uh, through AI have often been associated with the face of a gorilla. And two of my daughter, younger daughters, both African-American as well, um, ran into a similar situation online with AI. So we know there are challenges, mm -hmm. but with challenges come opportunities. And I'm glad to see this article in place and I'm glad to see liberal arts as a part of it. Well, I just love this story uh, so much for a couple of reasons. First, from what you're, you're talking about with the focus on artificial intelligence in the liberal arts, I think that this, you know, maybe could usher in some real opportunities for other small liberal arts colleges. And uh, as someone who went to Bowdoin College, just uh, a little bit south of Colby College in Maine, mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a real, you know, again, a real great possibility for these small liberal arts colleges um, to establish more of these institutes and to explore artificial intelligence and related topics. One gentleman who I never had a chance to meet, but whose life I admire is Dr. Benjamin Mays. Uh, he was uh, president of Morehouse College. He was a mentor to Dr. King and a generation of leaders. He attended Bates College uh, for his undergraduate degree, was on the debate team, studied philosophy. And I can just imagine now what it would have been like to have someone like Dr. Benjamin Mays uh, at the table working with engineers and others to talk about artificial intelligence through the lens of liberal arts. So Maine is producing good people like you as well. 
<laughs> it, it was uh, you know, certainly a, a wonderful education for me and, and so glad to see uh, some of these new initiatives that are occurring in these small liberal arts school colleges. Great. Well, speaking of great topics in the liberal arts or the arts in general, this way being the fine arts, we're going to have a conversation with Terry Teachout, who is an award-winning author, uh, former jazz musician, and he knows a great deal about Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington, and he's going to join us soon for a conversation about that. So stay with us when we return. What, what, what? What, what, what? What, well, so glad to be back and to be joined by Terry Teachout, uh, hearing a little bit more about his work. And uh, hopefully we'll even get a chance to hear a passage from uh, his biography of Louis Armstrong. So Terry Teachout is the drama critic of The Wall Street Journal, the critic at large of commentary, and the author of Sightings, a column for the journal about the arts in America. He also writes about the arts on his blog, About Last Night, and the URL for that is terryteachout.com. And he's a panelist on Three on the Isle, a podcast hosted by American Theatre Magazine. Satchmo at the Waldorf, uh, his first play has been produced off-Broadway and in Chicago, Houston, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., and other cities throughout America. He directed Satchmo at Palm Beach Drama Works in 2016 and at Houston's Alley Theater in 2018. His books include Duke, A Life of Duke Ellington and Pops, A Life of Louis Armstrong. Uh, Mr. Teachout, welcome. So glad you could be on the learning curve today. It's a pleasure to talk to you. So for our first question, uh, you know, jazz is perhaps America's most improvisational defining art form. Uh, and Louis Armstrong was the indispensable genius of it. Could you share with our listeners why Sachmo's trumpet playing vocals and world changing personality made him such a brilliant, internationally beloved musician? Well, that coin has three sides, so to speak. Um, the trumpet playing, of course, is is what put him on the map as a jazz musician. Uh, he was the first truly great soloist with, with wide appeal. Um, New Orleans music before him had basically been a, a group music, and uh, he stood out in very high relief. He was also the first great jazz singer. Uh, he had sung on the streets of New Orleans when he was a boy, and... Um, the vocals, which brings us to the third side of the coin, put his personality into the mix in a way that, that went even beyond the trumpet playing, which is gorgeous and extroverted and, and draws you in. But when he sings, you, you hear him as a personality. And there have been great musicians who had uninteresting personalities or weren't particularly forthcoming. But Louis Armstrong had a, a wonderful, expansive, life-enhancing personality. Everybody I ever talked to who knew him loved him. Nobody had a bad word to say about him. And this comes through very clearly whenever he sings or speaks on records or on film. He was also really the first jazz musician 
to have any kind of significant career in movies in Hollywood. And um, uh, especially at a time when there were deep racial divisions in America and uh, many white people had never responded with that kind of warmth to a black artist or a black person of, of any kind. And yet they did to Armstrong, they did in very large numbers. And I think that 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 changed America. So you've already alluded to this, you know, Armstrong grew up desperately poor in Jim Crow era New Orleans. Uh, his music helped to define the jazz age of the 1920s and 30s. And in 1964, at the age of 63, his number one hit, Hello, Dolly, broke the Beatles lock on the U.S. pop charts. Would you discuss the role that the American South and Armstrong's blues roots played in shaping his long and varied musical career? Well, it's not the South specifically so much as it is New Orleans, which is a, a, a completely separate culture, a, a multinational culture uh, with with French elements, Creole elements, uh, all blended together. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a port city, too. So all kinds of influences poured into that city. They are the reason why New Orleans is correctly regarded as the cradle of jazz. And it, uh, as the, like the song goes, it steamed up the river from New Orleans. Um, and Armstrong was present at the creation. He was not the first jazz musician. He did not invent jazz. But he heard the first jazz musicians. He played with some of the first important jazz musicians and took in everything they knew, everything that was in their toolbox and transformed it, made it personal, made it individual, made it uh, more brilliant, so to speak. Blues, of course, was in his bloodstream uh, as it was uh, in the musical makeup of everybody who was playing jazz in New Orleans back then. And uh, again, because he made records, because he started making them at a very early point in the history of jazz in 1923, um, our early ideas of what the blues sounded like were to a great extent shaped by the records he made. Uh, he is the one who made the record of, of St. Louis Blues with Bessie Smith that really put that song on the map. And um, he gave every musician of his generation and the next generation a vocabulary, a musical vocabulary, uh, which incorporated everything he knew, everything he'd heard, the blues, ragtime, um, uh, you know, what was there, uh, he took in and spread the word about. So some of his fellow musicians were highly critical of Armstrong, right? Dizzy Gillespie, Miles Davis, particularly critical of his humble demeanor and reserve in discussing civil rights issues. And your book highlights Satchmo boycotting his hometown of New Orleans over segregated bands, his 1957 public criticism of President Eisenhower's reticence in desegregating the Little Rock schools and his role as an international goodwill ambassador. But what should the general public, teachers, and students know about Armstrong's contribution to American race relations? 
Well, I've already said a bit about how the 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 warmth and expansiveness of his personality really bridged uh, uh, racial gaps uh, throughout the first part of his career. It's quite true that he did not talk about race issues, about politics until 1957. Uh, He just didn't think that was his job. He saw himself as an entertainer, not as a politician. I think he probably never even voted. But when in 1957, uh, the Little Rock schools went through the the convulsion uh, that that led to uh, uh, the mistreatment of of, of a young black student, and Eisenhower was slow to take action, now Armstrong uh, exploded, and he exploded with a reporter in the room, and said uh, some pretty astonishing things about Eisenhower, who back then was, you know, he was a man who had won World War II. He was uh, universally beloved. And yet here is Louis Armstrong, who is also universally beloved, uh, saying that, that Eisenhower was not doing his job as president. There's no way to know whether Eisenhower himself was uh, aware of what Armstrong said. Uh, He never said anything about it, of course. But the whole country was, because when he said it to a reporter, it went on the wire services the next day and made the front page of pretty much every newspaper in America. It It became world news. And because it was Satchmo who was saying it, everybody paid attention. That is a huge, huge thing in 1957 uh, at a time when it wasn't customary for blacks to speak out in that way and certainly not popular black entertainers. He really swept the table. And Dizzy and Miles lived long enough to realize that they had undervalued uh, and, and misunderstood his behavior prior to that time. Uh, and they both pretty much apologized for it. Uh, it didn't phase Armstrong. Nothing phased him. Um, you know, he said what he felt he needed to say and lived the kind of life he wanted to live. But it is, it is this episode in 1957 that really is his great personal individual contribution uh, to American rights relations and the civil rights movement. It's great to hear you talk about Armstrong and to humanize his story. Uh, I was born in Lake Charles, Louisiana and have family in New Orleans. And so his life was spoken of greatly. And I also lived for several years in Washington, D.C. And so I'm going to turn now to Duke Ellington, who uh, was born in that city. Your biography reveals that, you know, the Duke was the greatest jazz composer of the 20th century and an elegant puzzle of a man. Given that Ellington's uh, artistry and simultaneously his classical and democratic way in which he went about his work, how can educators and students alike come to better assess and understand his life, sophisticated jazz, and the enduring influence on American music? Well, this may strike you as a a simplistic answer, but in, in Duke's case, the first thing to do is to simply listen to the work. Because Ellington was a musical miniaturist. He wrote uh, three-minute-long pieces most of, for most of his life that would fit onto one side of a, of a 78 RPM record. And um, they're complex, they're ingenious, they're subtle. 
but they're also completely accessible. And they are completely unlike any kind of jazz that was being recorded. Well, Duke's major period started in the, the early to mid thirties and he reached the pinnacle of his work in 1941-42. And every time he took his band into the studio in those years, um, he was working miracles. And really, all you have to do is listen to a record like Harlem, Airshaft, or Mood Indigo, or uh, any one of a of hundred pieces. And you can hear something that nobody else was doing, something that still sounds completely fresh, um, and something that you don't have to know anything about Duke Ellington or about music in order to appreciate and enjoy. Uh, once you get past that, you find out of his life. You, you put it quite well when you say it was an elegant puzzle of a man. Uh, unlike Louis Armstrong, who was instantly knowable and whom everybody in a way sort of felt that they knew, uh, nobody really understood uh, Duke Ellington. He was a a man who who sought really to conceal himself. Uh, he was a public figure who was in some basic sense essentially private. Uh, I spent a whole book trying to get below the surface, that elegant surface. I think I had some success, but I, I would never claim that I, so to speak, knew Ellington in the same way that although I never met him, I, I felt at the end of my work that I knew Louis Armstrong. So let's talk about Duke and just move a little further north. So through classic songs sure. like Black and Tan, Fantasy, Mood, Indigo, or Take the A-Train, uh, Ellington and his 1920s, 30s orchestra at the Cotton Club, uh, since you mentioned Harlem, were perhaps the most prominent musical leaders in New York Harlem's renaissance. How can educators use the genius of Ellington's music, his role as a band leader, and his biography to help young people better understand culture and race in early 20th century America? Well, you yourself just mentioned the Harlem Renaissance. Ellington was not historically, literally a part of that. The Harlem Renaissance had nothing to do with jazz, frankly, nothing to do with music. It happened simultaneous uh, with, with uh, the rise of, of black music in, in Harlem and elsewhere. But uh, Ellington himself is as striking a figure as any of the writers, any of the poets, any of the, the, the painters that came out of the Harlem, Harlem Renaissance. And it was his achievement uh, others helped with this, obviously, but he is the key figure who did it to turn jazz from an improvised music, a small group music, into an orchestral music, into a, a music that has um, uh, ambitions to larger forms uh, and a music that, in his opinion, and he was quite clear about this, was it had it had nothing to apologize to classical music about. He really felt that the music he made in particular was as good as anything you could hear in a concert hall. And of course he made, gave many performances in Carnegie Hall uh, to prove that point exactly. Um, his personality also is, is very important. 
in understanding how he fits into the to the picture of race in 20th century America. Now, Armstrong was a, a great guy, a person everybody liked. You felt like, you know, you felt his warmth coming out of the speaker. Uh, Ellington presented himself as a man of polish, of elegance, of education, uh, a man who was not embarrassed to wear the tuxedo and dress up fancy because he knew that, that beneath that surface was the real thing in terms of jazz authenticity. Uh, and uh, the Harlem Renaissance is a middle-class Renaissance. It's very particularly. Now, Armstrong did not come from the, the middle class. He came from poverty. Uh, Ellington came from a, a middle-class family, the back, black bourgeoisie in, in Washington. And it was important to blacks of his time to be able to point to him and say, this is somebody we admire uh, to whose condition we aspire. Uh, somebody who can advance the cause of the race, uh, not just among his own people, but among all people. You mentioned class. And that's a really interesting distinction that we often overlook when we're talking about African-American men and women. Uh, through your work, you know, through your observations, what role do you think that skin color difference between an Ellington and uh, an Armstrong played? Or maybe not. Because it is point, enormously, enormously important. I think I am probably the first biographer to have discussed this frankly. There's a great deal of intraracial prejudice, or at least was until recently in the black community. Uh, lighter skinned blacks were identified with middle class aspiration. Uh, darker skinned blacks and Armstrong was quite unashamedly uh, dark skinned. Uh, they were seen as somehow in, in this whole class business were seen as somehow being lesser people farther down on the totem pole. Um, Ellington was a light-skinned black. And um, as unpleasant and wrong as this distinction was and is, it was nevertheless important in his life, important to him. Um, he befriended uh, the lighter-skinned people. He had no no color prejudice, so to speak, in his own band, but the people whom he chose to, knew, to know outside that context uh, and the women whom he liked to sleep with were quite usually uh, lighter skinned blacks. Um, to Armstrong, this meant nothing. Uh, he actually wrote a piece for Ebony in the 50s called Why I Like Dark Skinned Women. women. Uh, and he meant it. Uh, he just, he thought that was ridiculous. Uh, but to Ellington, who came from the bourgeoisie, uh, who, for whom this kind of status was important, it really is a factor in understanding him as a personality and understanding how he fits into the larger scheme of, of class in black America. Thanks for sharing that with us. Uh, for you, pick a passage of your choosing to share with all of us. I'd be glad to. It is the last paragraph of my book about Louis Armstrong, Pops. Faced with the terrible realities of the time and place into which he had been born, he did not repine, but returned love for hatred. 
and sought salvation in work. Therein lay the ultimate meaning of his epic journey from squalor to immortality, his sunlit, hopeful art, brought into being by the labor of a lifetime, spoke to all men in all conditions, and helped make them whole. Beautiful. Thank you. So great to have you, Mr. Teachout. Thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure to chat with you both. I'm always glad to talk about these two amazing men. Wonderful conversation with Mr. Teachout. Um, so interesting to learn more about the life and work of Louis Armstrong. Uh, and always great to be with you, Gerard. Our tweet of the week is this time from Michael Horn. This was on February 15th. And he shared an article uh, from the Boston Globe that was an excellent article about learning pods, which we've been talking a lot about during the pandemic, these uh, small co-learning communities of families getting together with other families, uh, pooling their resources, potentially hiring teachers or having parents take turns facilitating a curriculum. Uh, as a way to provide some social interaction for kids and uh, and also some good you know educational opportunities. And so the Globe did a piece on this about how more um, learning pods are taking off in black and Latino neighborhoods. So Michael Horn says, I'm glad the media is taking note of what, and he he cites here the Center for Reinventing Public Education at the University of Washington has been documenting. He says, opportunity for these organizations to be part of a longer-term transformation intrigues me, learning pods taking root in Black and Latino neighborhoods. Just uh, um, a real great innovation, I think, to come out of a difficult year. Yeah, Michael is usually five years ahead of most of us, and I'm always glad to read what he writes and to listen to him when he talks about innovation and reform. In fact, he was kind enough to participate in an event I had in December, uh, talking about what uh, education will look like. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for co-hosting with me today. I really enjoyed the tag team, but more importantly, always good to be with you, you as well. I can consider you someone to be a forward-thinking person, not only about uh, homeschooling, uh, but really about what teaching and learning looks like across uh, the different uh, parts of the ecosystem. So thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks, Gerard. Always great to be with you. And next week, we're going to have Ayan Hirsi Ali. She is the founder of the AHA Foundation. She's a research fellow with the Hoover Institution at Stanford and the author of several books, uh, including Prey, Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights, Infidel, My Life, and Nomad, From Islam to America, a personal journey through the clash of civilizations. It will be a very fascinating conversation as all of our conversations are here at The Learning Curve. Again, thank you for spending time with us and we will see you next week.